This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. Hopefully we have a year where we can catch our breath. Uh, you know, right now about 80% of our deployable assets are out in the field. The average uh, deployment for um, a FEMA person out in the field was 136 days this past year. Um, we cannot continue to keep up this pace that we're pushing forward. Uh, and it's forcing us to uh, rethink the business enterprise. Hi, and welcome to 2019 and the Ian Weekly Show. This is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. And can you believe that it's been, this is going to be our third year of bringing quality content and information and interviews to the Ian Weekly listener. And if you're just joining us now for the first time or or, uh, fairly new to uh, Ian Weekly, thank you for, for being here as well. And I'd love to have you go back and take a look at some of our older um, episodes and just to kind of see and catch up with with, uh, who we brought on to the show. And uh, 2018 was a great year. And 2018 is looking to be uh, an even more exciting uh, year coming up, especially with some of the interviews that we have. And and especially today with the fact that we have uh, Administrator Long from FEMA here with us. And uh, we're going to be getting into some of the conversations uh, with him. You know... um, Brock Long has had his hands full these last few years, a couple of years, I guess. And, uh, you know, with all the storms and, and fires and, and whatnots that have been happening here in the United States and our territories over uh, over the last couple of years since Administrator Long has taken, taken office. And uh, it's been challenging for sure for him. And, uh, you know, one of the issues that I've seen come across uh, the emergency management space is some of the conversations that he's had in front of Congress. And I want to say some of the blame uh, faced on or placed on the administrator or FEMA, for that matter, for, for lack of response, I think is misplaced. And um, it's our plans and our exercises, our responses, our people on the ground. And we have to take, as emergency managers in that area, we have to take responsibility and blame when things uh, do go sideways. As much as I love the people from FEMA and what they do, and I have some great friends that work in that organization, they are not the knights on the white horse to come riding in and to save every jurisdiction during a disaster. Now, in the planning phase of emergency management, we do work really well with FEMA. In the recovery phase of emergency management, we have to work really well with FEMA, right? Those things are really important, but it's not all about them coming in and and taking over. And I think it's a misnomer that the public has about what FEMA is. You know, um, I know that uh, there's a few congressmen uh, in Washington that politically, I think, is what it is more than anything else because they just don't like the president uh, are taking an administrator along to task. But my view on what the administrator has been doing and his ideas, I think, are, are I've been pretty open about this as I think they're pretty strong and I really am excited about um, some of the professionalism that he wants to bring to the field of emergency management. 
just this this week there was a press release from a California city and they're talking about in in a great way how they promoted or they given a lieutenant detective from the police department the position of emergency manager uh, for the city and it looks like that's probably where uh, emergency management sits in that city is inside the police department and they handed it over to this person who is a decorated patrol officer who was the lieutenant over the the communications department or section, the detectives, and uh, this the lieutenant cracked cases and 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 brought people to, to jail that in, in a timely manner. And uh, it was such a great way and very intelligent person. And I don't take anything away from this person because I'm sure this lieutenant is a wonderful police officer, a wonderful detective, and is doing all these things. That's missing in their bio nothing to do with emergency management. They didn't go to school for emergency management. They didn't respond to, at least on this bio that we're reading, to any major incidents. Um, they didn't go to any large-scale disasters. You know, my friends, this is the issue that we're having here. If we want to professionalize emergency management, we can't celebrate giving the position of emergency manager to somebody who is not qualified to sit in that seat. We need to move away from lights and sirens. We need to move emergency management up, you know, and that's the issues that we're having here. Well, let me get off my soapbox here. Now let's get to the interview. Well, I am super excited to have uh, FEMA Administrator Brock Long here again for the for the second time, and, and hopefully we can make this uh, a yearly event. So, Administrator Long, welcome to Ian Weekly. Todd, glad to be here again. How you doing? Well, I'm I'm doing great. Well, wow, you come into the uh, to the job, and all of a sudden we have a bunch of hurricanes, and so trial by by rain, I suppose, and wind. And now this year with uh, California on fire, and then hurricanes again. You've really been tested here at your office. How are things going for you? Well, you know, to put the past two years into perspective is very hard to do, but the sheer magnitude of what we've been through in 2017 and 2018 since I came on board is going to force us to totally rethink the business enterprise here at FEMA, but also it it should challenge the entire field of emergency management on the way things need to work going forward. And again, the numbers are staggering. So, We've done some initial analysis that based on the 2017 and 18 calendar year, the amount of money that we're going to put out in public assistance as a result of these past two years is the same as what the agency has done in its 38 years of entire history combined. Literally, we have packed 38 years of assistance into 16 months since I've been on board. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and it's forcing us to rethink rethink everything. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think a bigger FEMA is what we need. We need a stronger whole community. And I don't just throw that term around. I think we have to be deliberate on how we uh, move forward and uh, change the audience uh, of the whole community and ask people to be prepared. But, you know, it, it's going to take all of us coming in together. It's going to take uh, state legislators and local elected officials bolstering their emergency management agencies and the budgets uh, and their capability, their workforce capability. Uh, and it's got to be more than just depending on FEMA. No, you're absolutely right. 
you know, just kind of take a look at, at some of the communities that we just lost last couple of years. I mean, you had uh, Santa Rosa Fire. We had a whole community that was lost up there. And then uh, obviously with Campfire, uh, with Paradise burning uh, 65% of the residential buildings over there. And then, of course, Mexico Beach, uh, Florida, where that entire town was destroyed. And we're seeing like a lot of impact on the insurance companies because of that. And I know that in Paradise, uh, the insurance company that was hosting most of the uh, homes up there went insolvent. Um, so we have some some serious conversations that we have to have, not with just the emergency management community, but like you said, with our partners in in insurance as well. How do you, how can we start that conversation with those community partners? Well, as I keep saying, the key to disaster resiliency is not a bigger FEMA. It's actually uh, stronger building codes, land use planning and zoning at the local level. But until uh, we start electing local officials based on that, you know, we're going to keep this vicious cycle going. You know, the big thing that occurred uh, that most of the industry, you know, really didn't pay attention to was the transformational law changes of the Disaster Recovery Reform Act that just went into place. I mean, I testified 12 times last year, I believe 12 times last year, 14 times total now since being in office on the need to do pre-disaster mitigation up front. And uh, the Congress proactively put the law in place to do that. So. What's great about, you know, coming forward into the new year and what state and local emergency managers need to understand is how to start budgeting for the changes in the DRRA. So what the law says is that if I, you know, 6% of all the funding, uh, no matter what we spend in recovery, any given year, 6% of all the recovery dollars that we send that we'll spend will now be put up front in pre-disaster mitigation. So if that law had gone into place last year, it would be the equivalent of two to two and a half billion dollars out there for infrastructure uh, mitigation measures uh, the following year. So this law is in place. And, and what we've got to do is educate our state and local uh, elected officials that a massive amount of pre-disaster mitigation funding is about to hit the street next year. Are you ready to you know offset the match? And what is your comprehensive strategy you know moving forward to bolster the infrastructure to make sure it doesn't go down and we don't lose lives as a result and we're, we're less impacted in the future. How does that work with like, say the small jurisdictions? Now I know like a, like say New York city or Los Angeles city uh, type of place can, can really benefit from those, uh, those monies. And they probably a little bit more uh, have the bigger ability to, to spend money to be able to get that money. But how do we take a look at small towns, you know, say like a, a town of say 25,000, how do we help them? get that funding? Well, first of all, I think the biggest part of the problem is, is most of, you know, you have so much turnover in the elected official uh, arena. Uh, you know, we've got a handful of new governors coming in. Have they ever been educated on the type of money that's out there uh, so that when they go into the budget making process in their own communities, are they aware of what's available? And I'm not so sure that we've done a great job of, of understanding the amount of money that's out there. Todd, in this country right now, there is $8 billion of post-disaster HMGP funding sitting on the table waiting to be used. <laughs> is that FEMA's problem? Or is that an education problem? Um, is it a match problem? Uh, but I would be willing to bet that a lot of communities have no idea that there's that much money sitting there waiting to be used for mitigation purposes as a result of going through a lot of of the disasters because we haven't educated those who have been newly elected and put into office. I think it's a multi, multi-pronged problem that we have here, not just the education of our elected officials, but the fact that with our industry, we have a lot of emergency managers, quote unquote, that are 
collateral duty. Uh, they're just they're going through checking off boxes to make sure that that's done, but they really aren't educating themselves on, on how to really navigate uh, some of those political and also financial mazes that are out there. How do we, and again, it's going to go back to education, I suppose. Where do we start? Do we start with educating the emergency manager or do we start with educating the elected official or city administrators? Where do you think the first step would be to be able to get people to understand what's out there? Well, you know, I often think, look, I love emergency management, man. I love going out and talking to emergency managers and understanding, you know, the great work that they're doing and the challenges that they face. But I'm also ready to, to change the audience. I think every emergency manager at all levels needs to change the audience and who they work with on a day-to-day basis on Blue Sky Days. So, for example, we've made a deliberate initiative to start reaching out to the realtors of the, of the nation, the financial advisors of the nation, you know, the state and local legislators that are out there rather than going to emergency management conferences per se. Uh, so think about it, Todd. There's a realtor in every community across the United States. They have one of the most powerful lobbies. You know, 1.2 million realtors are a part of the National Realtor Association in this country. How do we turn them into our censors, into our our um, advocates to, to understand the importance of community mitigation you know, going forward, and we have to correct some bad behaviors. And, and you know, for example, why are realtors saying, hey, this house doesn't, you know, isn't required for flood insurance? That's a good thing. Well, no, wrong. That's wrong. We need to rethink that. You know, quite honestly, FEMA only, you know, maps the special flood hazard area. We don't map all possible flooding, you know, hazards that are prevalent in a community. Any house can flood. You know, get insurance, teaching the financial advisors that the NFIP. Uh, is a very lucrative program. Uh, you want to be insured since any house can flood. So stop talking people out of insurance. Protect the greatest assets that you have. we got to change the audience like that to also start putting influence on the local elected officials of saying, hey, we really need to grab some of that mitigation money that's out there. The nation's never had a better opportunity than now to mitigate with all the funding that's coming down the pipe on the pre-disaster side. We just have to get the word out, look at other uh, special interest groups, and audiences to help bolster uh, support for the local emergency manager because they're just one small voice in a community. So one of the things we've been talking about lately is the idea of resilient community. And, you know, we've been working hard. Uh, I, I know that the uh, Rockefeller Foundation has put a lot of money into uh, resilient cities. Uh, they wanted to do 100 resilient cities. And, and what's that mean? You know, it's a conversation that's going on. And so here, you know, in the county that I live in, uh, we've been having this conversation as well about what does it look like to be a resilient community? And you're, you're right on the money right there, Brock, because what we did is, is we're reaching out to our real estate agents because they do have the pulse of their, they call them the farms. They do have the pulse of their community because they farm certain areas and they know what it's like, who's coming in, what's the economics of that um, area and how they can impact and hand out things to, to the community members. And I think it's a really important idea to bring people like that into the fold. How, how else can we develop a really strong, resilient community? All right. Great question, Todd. So this is twofold, in my opinion. First, you got to start with an educated, prepared citizenry. The biggest problem staring FEMA in the face is the problem of asset poverty. And I think I've said this before on your own. Maybe I said it the last time on the podcast. Not poverty as in I don't make enough money to make ends meet. It is I make a good salary. I spend more than I make. And therefore, What's happening is, is we got to get that corrected because people do not have their own rainy day funds. 
Right. And what you see in the California wildfires, for example, is you see senior citizens struggling in, re- in retirement. So what they've done, and somebody's probably taught them to do this, is once you pay off your mortgage, let your fire insurance lapse. Well, when those types of behaviors start to occur in an increasing manner across this country, it becomes FEMA's problem. So we see this trend of individual assistance skyrocketing, not necessarily because of the number of events, but more because of the social vulnerability around financial resiliency. So what we've got on our website now on FEMA.gov or ready.gov, excuse me, is, is a financial preparedness toolkit on the things you need to consider. We've got to get financial advisors to stop talking people out of not being properly insured and insuring their businesses or their assets. So it starts there. But then I think a lot about this on the physical mitigation side. So another concept that we've been pushing out and you're going to see a lot more is the the construct of community lifelines. Okay. We learned in 2017 that we, we are not doing a great job of unity of effort when it comes to response stabilization phase, as well as how we're going to push through in outcome-driven recovery. And so what we've done internally is we've identified seven community lifeline areas. And, and basically a lifeline is a sector that provides indispensable service to a community. And when they go down, life safety is in jeopardy or life routine is, is, has been disrupted. And we've got to concentrate on getting these seven lifelines back up to overcome the disaster. So one is safety and security. Two is food, water, and shelter. Three is health and medical. Four is energy and fuel. Five is communications. Six is transportation. And then the final one is hazardous waste and materials. And what we're looking at is if any one of those is down, as I said earlier, then lives are are being lost or the routine of life cannot be restored until those seven lifelines are back up. So how do we get all of our ESFs focusing on getting those community lifelines back up and running and going from red status to green status. Okay, that's the response phase. But what if we, and these are the seven things that plague emergency managers in every disaster in my opinion. So what if we also start to craft our mitigation, community mitigation strategies around those seven lifelines to make sure that we don't lose the health and medical capability, to make sure that we don't lose the communications backbone, to make sure that we don't lose the transportation networks and we really start focusing all the mitigation on those seven lifelines. And so you can actually go on our website on FEMA.gov to also look at a, an FAQ, frequently asked questions about community lifelines, and that's the direction that we're going to start going and asking, we're going to start asking emergency managers to reconfigure their event management software, their web EOCs and that kind of thing to start collecting information along those community lifelines and pushing it up so that FEMA can better serve a state and local government with overcoming response and recovery during disasters. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's interesting, when I went to the IEM conference in Grand Rapids and we had a good conversation uh, and the presentation from FEMA regarding lifelines and what that really means, and I think this is something that as an emergency manager that we should embrace and, and really it's a good starting point. And I think that when you talk to your community members, it makes sense to them. This is really broken down to, to where they understand that if these things do fail, um, it's going to be a hard time to recover. I mean, for instance, in, in, in California, we talk about the San Andreas Fault. Dr. Lucy Jones goes over the fact that we're going to be without water for six months. And when, we, when she says without water for six months, she's talking about all water, not just drinking water, hygiene water, firefighting water any kind of, because it could be cut off. So we really have to look at mitigating that concern 
um, specifically with with the earthquake. And I know that this is the issues that we have, you know, uh, back east when I grew up uh, back there. That during the snowstorms, being cut off from the community uh, for for a week or two, and understanding those uh, concerns that you have to have. And that's why, you know, we would always make sure that during the winter time that we had plenty of food and water and milk and whatnot uh, ready to go. So I think this is going back to the basics, and it really makes a lot of sense to me. So that being said. How are we as emergency managers, how are we getting this word out? I mean, I know we're hearing from you today. If you went to the conference, you heard it there. Are we doing a good job as emergency managers sharing this information with each other? We're going to take a quick break here and listen to what our sponsors have to say. And we'll be right back to the interview in a minute. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter. Thank you for listening to our sponsors. And without them, we really can't do what we're doing. So check them out. Let them know that Ian Weekly sent you. Now back to the interview. How are we as emergency managers, how are we getting this word out? I mean, I know we're hearing from you today. If you went to the conference, you heard it there. Are we doing a good job as emergency managers sharing this information with each other? Uh, that's a great question, Todd. I mean, you know, I, in this job, every day I'm learning. Um, you know, just because we're talking about community lifelines in certain segments within FEMA, uh, the message is not necessarily resonating down through the agency. And, uh, you know, we have our own struggles of, of educating a 21,000 person workforce on why we're going to community lifelines, why we're going to FEMA integration teams in these concepts. And we're, we're having to refocus that and streamline how we stay in front of our employees every day of saying, here is why this is necessary and what we're doing about, you know, to solve these problems. And, you know, I'm always worried that uh, information is not getting out into the, uh, the profession of emergency management. And I'll use the DRRA the Disaster Recovery Reform Act, as an example. When this was being initially put brought forward by Congress, quite frankly, and I hate to say it, the emergency management community was asleep at the wheel and had no idea that this transformational act was being considered by Congress. And quite frankly, I don't think a lot of the emergency management community is aware that it passed and what the ramifications are. Did you know, for example, Todd, that as a result of the DRRA, the management cost provisions have increased tremendously, which allows, you know, state and local government to increase their ability from 3.34% management cost to 7% to the state level, 5% to the local level. That allows you for smaller disasters to go out and hire pre-event contractors to help you with staff augmentation or technical assistance, hire force account labor. The, the management cost for the post-disaster mitigation funding went to 15% uh, respectively, which is a tremendous amount of money to allow communities to bring in the assets to get this stuff done. And it's bolstered our army. But I would argue that a lot of people in the profession have no idea that this has been passed. No, you're absolutely right. And and I think that, again, it goes back to, there's two issues I think associated with it. Well, one is, is that as an emergency manager, you really need to engage in your community. When I talk about your community, I'm talking about those emergency managers that are in close to your jurisdiction and, and having professional organizations, you know, kind of like the California State Emergency Management Association or in uh, Orange County, we have OSIMO, which is a bunch of 
uh, emergency managers that monthly meet together, talk about things that are going on. And it doesn't have to be a physical location. I mean, y'all can can do you know webinars and things like this to really understand what's going out there. But it takes effort, you know. Um, I teach emergency management uh, at a community college and, and now um, also at uh, at UCI. And those are things I stress to my students is making sure that you grow your network and continuously converse with people about emergency management in the profession across the board. And this is why EM Weekly exists. You know, this is why we started this podcast is to be able to share this information with emergency managers across the board. So you're right, Brock. We need to really do a better job as EMs to, to educate ourselves and keep educating ourselves. And I think I think going through organizations like with FEMA, with EMI, I think that's a, a really good avenue as well. Now, I know you guys have a podcast as well. Can you talk a little bit about that real quick? Yeah, actually, uh, oddly enough, I, I, I did another podcast this morning. We're trying to uh, look at every avenue to amplify information and put it out there. And so we started our own podcast that we started to push out to make sure that we're saying, here's why we're doing uh, the things that we're doing. And here's why we have to change as a result of the last two years. So uh, by all means, uh, we ask people to go look and, and download the podcast that we're putting out and amplify it as much as possible. We're trying to create the conversations. Uh, you know, the other thing that we've been doing is prep talks as well. So I don't know if you've seen the prep talks that the Office of Resilience has been uh, leading and bringing in thought leadership into emergency management to start discussing, hey, what is the, what is emergency manager? What's the emergency manager 2.0 look like? Uh, because, Todd, I mean, you know, here again, you know, lights and sirens and incident command will always be part of emergency management's DNA. But the fact of the matter is we now, going into the new year, need to focus on other things such as billion-dollar disaster, financial disaster recovery. You know, disaster cost recovery is one of the weakest links inside the emergency management community that we've got to put a focus on. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you look at last year's supplemental funding in 2017, $118 billion in supplemental funding was provided to the emergency management community. It put money in 20 different federal government agencies to fund over 90 different recovery programs. Okay, wrap your head around that. Todd, is your community's recovery plan remotely indicative of handling that type of money coming from that many different, different agencies? And how do you make it all work together to do the greatest good and become more resilient? And we've got to start, you know, getting the emergency manager 2.0 to look like a financial disaster recovery expert in their communities uh, and bolstering their their presence in their communities by saying, hey, one day we could come into, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars as a result of going through this. Here's our strategy to make sure we do it right. Yeah, I mean, that's that is key, you know, and that's and again, it goes back to what I've been saying for last couple of years here is that we need to professionalize. Uh, I, I guess I hate saying more, but uh, the the role of the emergency manager and and take them out of that response agencies where right now a lot of places are sitting in fire, they're sitting in in uh, police departments where they need to actually be uh, a third service. But that's just me on my soapbox. You don't have to agree with me or not, but I, I think that we need to have a more professional emergency manager out there that we have uh, today. I totally agree with you, Todd. I think it's time to graduate a little bit from the lights and sirens uh, stereotype that emergency management uh, exists within. We've got to go out and show, you know, our lo- local elected officials the the value that we could potentially put forward. I mean, look, let's face it: hurricanes, floods, and wildfires will make or break political careers. You know, it, it's something that 
you know, really needs to, you know, where the emergency manager can, can empower themselves within their, uh, their communities. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing it. I mean, um, Sonoma County, uh, went and hired a professional emergency manager just this, uh, they just announced it this week, uh, uh who it is. And, and the guy who got the job is, is, has been in the emergency management profession for a long time. And so I'm glad that he's up there doing it. Uh, and I think you're going to see the same issue where with uh, Butte County in California, where the sheriff's department is the EM and they don't have a professional emergency manager up there right now. And you can see how that impacted that, uh, that fire response. Again, I'm on my soapbox a little bit. I think there's more people out here listening to us probably agree than, than not, but I just kind of wanted to point that out uh, one more time. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, Brock, just what do you see, you know, coming for this year coming up? What's what's the forecast for FEMA, and, and what are you guys doing? Well, hopefully we have a year where we can catch our breath. Uh, <laughs> you know, right now about 80% <laughs> of our deployable assets are out in the field. The average uh, deployment for um, a FEMA person out in the field was 136 days this past year. Um, we cannot continue to keep up this pace that we're pushing forward. Uh, and it's forcing us to uh, rethink the business enterprise. Uh, and so how are we doing that? Well, uh, one, we're trying to push out FEMA integration teams. Uh, the goal was to put 12 people in, or 12 teams in place uh, by the end of the year. But I'm happy to say that we have 15 teams out there. We also put a new uh, tribal fit team to serve Region 10 uh, out there. So we're trying to continue to push our staff out into the field to become part of the daily conversation. And that's going to continue to push forward. You're also going to see us unveil a pre-event contract toolkit for state and local governments. The best way that, you know, to bolster capability is through the private use of the private sector. But we need to fine tune uh, what communities should ask for, what types of contracts should be in place before the disaster so that you're somewhat more self-sufficient than just depending on FEMA uh, for large-scale resources or the state for resources. You know, for example, putting disaster cost recovery uh, technical assistance contracts in place, debris contracts in place, looking at private, um, private public vendor managed concepts to do logistics. Uh, what are the contracts that you have to do emergency power, uh, you know, to get your hands on generator? We want communities proactively putting this in place rather than just sending a request up to the state, ultimately to FEMA to fulfill it during a disaster. And that's the only way, you know, that's, that's a start. Um, the other thing that we're going to do is unveil what's called FEMA pitch. You know, and FEMA pitch is going to be our interface with the private sector. There's no entry point for the private sector into FEMA. And we get hit with thousands of companies, you know, highly capable companies that do different things. They want to be involved in emergency management. And we have no filter to point them in the right direction as to how they can help. So you're going to see FEMA pitch uh, be out, you know, uh, rolled out as well. The other thing that we're working on is streamlining our grants management interface. Uh, we're we're going to roll out FEMA Go, uh, which is basically a uh, grants management modernization process of saying, if we put out these different grants, it, it took a different software tool to manage each one. Uh, what we're trying to do is put one graphical user interface out there to manage all FEMA grants so that you're not having to go to separate systems. So we're really trying to... Uh, streamline and be better organized uh, on how we work with other people, but also how we uh, process and manage uh, grants and, and, and pushing stuff out. So there's a, there's a lot that's happening. Uh, the DRA, again, the Disaster Recovery Reform Act, while it was transformational and great, there's 64 different provisions that we have to wade through, which is huge. So imagine that we've had 
all these disasters, unprecedented amount of disasters. We packed 38 years into the last 16 months. We have the DRRA that we're having to uh, quickly come up to speed on and implement uh, because there are time frames uh, by law that we have to meet certain provisions within that law. But we also want to continue to push forward with the, st- the, the unifying strategic plan. Not my strategic plan, but we're asking that the profession of emergency management adopt the strategic plan. So right now, uh, there is a ton going on. We are moving at light speed uh, because we have to, uh, based on what we've, what we've been through. Yeah, I know you guys are, you guys, I, I just uh, feel for FEMA right now with everything that you guys are going through, specifically with all the disasters that occurred and, and, the, and a lot of the political changes going on there too. I know back in November, you're in front of Congress and, and uh, it was a little, uh, little confrontational, I suppose, on, on part of one of the Congress members there. And I think you did a really good job of, of answering those questions and, and telling them, you know, you know, that realistically, if you want the results, you need to, to pay for it and, and to get more uh, members of FEMA. Can you talk a little bit about your reserve program and, and how that looks and, and how that can uh, really help out with FEMA? Oh, so the disaster reserve program, you know, is part of our bread and butter. It will always be part of uh, FEMA's capability. It's like our own version of our of the National Guard, uh, you know, to the Army, uh, to the United States military. You know, so we depend on them to be able to deploy out. What I would like is that you know, the reserve cadre become the jumping on point that leads to more permanent full-time position employment with the agency. It becomes our recruiting ground. It becomes a training ground, you know, so that people get out in the field, see how, uh, you know, states and local governments receive federal assistance, but also how to put it to work in a meaningful manner. Uh, the reservist cadre is a great jumping on point, but the laws need to change a little bit on how FEMA reservists can earn credit for their time as a reservist so that they can transition into the other more permanent full-time positions within the agency. Uh, the also, you know, the, the FEMA integration teams, you know, if, if I could wave my wand and change our entire hiring process, you know, I would go to an FBI or a secret service hiring process model where we, we do it by um, cadre classes. They go through, all things uh, Quantico-based emergency management education, and then we put them out in a FEMA integration team for three to five years, let them learn that job at the grassroots level, working with states and local governments, and then allow them to come up to run regional programs at the 10 regional offices and then eventually make their way to headquarters. What's slowing that down? Uh, there's just so many policies in, in place and the way that the money works. It takes budget changes. It takes... Uh, you know, comprehensive review of what positions are available or reorganizing positions and reclassifying positions to be able to free up um, the space. But, you know, our new deputy, Pete Gaynor, who's the former Rhode Island Emergency Management Agency director, is playing a very instrumental role on drilling down and trying to make big, big ideas like that work, as well as, you know, fix a lot of the IT infrastructure issues that we have or, HR issues that we've had, you know, he is drilling down through and, and trying to get a handle on that to see if we can't make it happen. Go forward. Is there anything that you'd like to really, if you had to talk, if you could talk to every single emergency manager at the same time, what would you tell them today? It's a great question. I think the expectations being placed on FEMA are uh, somewhat greater than the ability to be able to meet those. And uh, one thing that I would like to see in the field of emergency management is a stronger brotherhood, uh, if you will. Um, that we are all one team, that we are all trying to strive to save lives and reduce the impact of disasters all over the place. How do we continue to work together 
to strengthen that partnership each and every day. You know, and, and at the end of the day, we got to make sure that the nation understands that FEMA is not 911. We're not a first responder. In my opinion, uh, the best way to prepare, respond, and recover is when the effort is locally executed, state managed, and federally supported, not the other way around. Uh, and I want to do everything that I can. And I know that the 21,000 dedicated employees inside FEMA have been, you know, truly busting their rear ends to help others really want to do everything that they can to help state and local governments overcome gaps and, and to uh, bolster uh, their capabilities. But we need a stronger brotherhood in the, uh, in the field of emergency management. You're absolutely right. Okay. One last question. What book are you reading right now? Well, I can tell you what uh, the senior executive service uh, members inside FEMA are reading. They are reading Extreme Ownership. You know, we, we've had a little bit of an internal crisis that uh, I got to uncover and uh, deal with in regards to some pretty bad behaviors that were going on inside the, uh, the organization. And it's forced us to come together as senior executive leaders on what real leadership looks like. And so we're reading Extreme Ownership collectively and uh, working on how we lead internally and externally to this agency. Outstanding. Well, sir, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it was a pleasure having you and I'd like to have you again sometime. Thanks, Todd. Absolutely. Let's keep the dialogue going.